Thanks for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. This sermon is titled Value Assessment, and the scripture is found in Luke 7. We hope you enjoy. Um, as we dig in today, I want us to start with a, a bit of a out-of-season reflection. Uh, at Christmas time, when you go downstairs as a kid and you go to look under the tree, when you're a young kid, you start looking for presents. What do you, what do you hope to see? You hope to see the biggest present under the tree, right? You want the big one. Now, as you get older, um, that changes. But when you're younger, you want to see the big one. The reason you want to see the big one is because you assess value oftentimes by how big the present is. As a matter of fact, when, I was, when my kids were younger, I could go to the Dollar Tree and buy them a really big present for like a dollar <laughs> and put it under the tree, and I would get good brownie points for having a, a good, a good uh, present for them. As you get older, though, that changes a little bit, doesn't it? You go from one of the biggest presents on the tree to one that will fit into an envelope. Because uh, a check fits into an envelope, and that's kind of what you're looking for, something, spot, something different. So value has a tendency to change based on perspective and context. Uh, that's, that's real, right? Uh, we would assign different values to different things based on the context. If I were to offer you a million dollars right now or a cup of water, which one would you choose? Probably choose that million dollars. If... You, if Right, right here, right now, million dollars. But, <laughs> golly, y'all got it. But if you were in the desert and you were chained to a stump and you hadn't had anything to drink for days and days and days and days, your only hope was to drink water. Million dollars or a glass of water? Probably going to choose a glass of water. <laughs> Something's going to work out here. Just lay the million dollars there. If I survive, at least I'll be a rich man. If not, no worries. <laughs> hey, this is a rhetorical question. Would y'all be quiet? <laughs> no, value definitely changes based on context and how we assign value uh, in everywhere of life. I want to take us through a little bit of an exercise this morning just to get started as we think about how we... Uh, live out and describe value based on choices we make. If you had the choice between, and I don't, I don't want you to answer this time, literally, I want this to be rhetorical, not, not for my benefit, but because I want you to think about it a little bit as you, as you reflect on it. And that way, if there is something that I get wrong in this questionnaire, Tom, then I won't get caught with it. But, you know, if you had the choice between a double cheeseburger from McDonald's and a steak from Ruth Chris, you have a choice to make. And you would choose one based on the value that you assign to that thing, right? So uh, think about that for a second, rhetorically, in your mind. Uh, what would you choose, the double cheeseburger or the, or the Ruth Chris, maybe filet mignon or ribeye, whatever you, whatever you choose? Unless you're Will, then you want chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A instead of either one of them. So, you know, that's value. That's, that's value. You, you would describe value, how you, your value assignment or your value assessment would be based on choice. Well, if you had to choose between that steak and a new car, maybe your dream car, uh, now, now the value assignment, the value is... It's different, and, and the reason why, or the reason we see that is based on the choice you might would make. Or maybe between your dream car and your dream house, what choice would you make? And then between your dream house and maybe your dream career. And then maybe between your career and your family. What we end up seeing as we go through an exercise like this is that we have a tendency to uh, use the mechanism of choice to reflect what is more valuable, one thing more valuable than another. Um, so I'll ask you a question today. What if there was something more valuable than all of those things? Something that was more valuable than 
then the double cheeseburger, then the, the Ruth Chris prime rib or, or ribeye or whatever your steak of choice is, then your dream car, then your dream house, your dream, your dream career, even more valuable than your family. What if there was something or someone that actually was a greater value, a greater choice than all of those things? We're going to look at a story from the life of Jesus. It's kind of part two from what we read last week. Now, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, as we mentioned a minute ago. Um, and just as a reminder of where we were, we read a story last week about Jesus being anointed. And uh, we learned a little bit about where, why that anointed, what that anointing, uh, what that anointed means um, in the context of the text and how it reflects our tendency to approach God in one of three ways, either in immorality, morality, or based on the gospel. And the gospel is the way we approach God in a way that makes us accepted before God and gets us access to the full, full glory and full presence of who God is and all the favor and all the blessing of God. We saw that in last week's text. Well, uh, today I'm going to see kind of part two and what is our response to that. And that's where we're going to end up. We're going towards what our response to the gospel is as we look at Luke 7 and a different version of the story more closely. So I do in perfect transparency, I want to make sure that you guys understand what's going on in the text a little bit. So we said last week... That, there are, uh, that this story of Mary, uh, the, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, anointing Jesus, that occurs in all the Gospels. Matthew, we read very specifically. We really looked at Mark a little bit and John a little bit. But this is where it occurs in Luke. Now, some scholars disagree with that. Uh, some Bible students would actually look at this and say it's a completely different scenario, a completely different story. Um, and the reason why is because it's in a different order and some of the details don't necessarily seem different but they might seem hard to fit into the story we read last week. So you might ask me, as the guy who's supposed to spend all the, all the time studying which where I land, I'm just saying I just don't know. Um, last week as I was standing up to preach, I was convinced that this was just another version of the same story. I, I still lean that way. Uh, I still lean that way simply because this is the version that Luke included. But it does come in a different place. But we do know oftentimes that gospel writers didn't use chronological order and their emphasis wasn't on when things happened. They were, the emphasis was on why they the, the emphasis was on why they happened, and what they meant. And so it isn't surprising to us that John and Matthew, with very strong theological messages, would have rearranged or put this story in a, a very specific place, so not to communicate when it happened, but why it happened. Luke, on the other hand, if this is the same story, would be an author who is much more interested in when it happened because Luke was a historian. He was a scientist, a physician. So if this is the same story, this might be a little bit more chronologically accurate. But really all of that, we can set it aside and ask this question, why did Luke include the story at all? And I think it's for us to understand a little bit more deeply uh, what goes on in the heart of someone who expresses their love to another in the way that we see in this story and the way we saw in the stories last week. So what is the story? Well, let's read it. Um, I'm going to start in verse 36. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, turn your Bibles on. Turn your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's the way they would eat during these days. People didn't have a, you know, a big table with seats around it. They would actually have a table that was pretty low to the ground. And, and they would lay down. Not really great for digestion, I don't think. But they would lay down and their head would actually be pretty near to the table. And their feet would be kind of extending outward. So Jesus uh, enters the Pharisee's house. He's reclining at the table in a very traditional manner. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears. 
You can kind of sense a build-up here before we keep reading, right? When you read this carefully and slowly, the picture I get is a series of decisions, not one big decision in one moment. A series of decisions uh, that lead to her being at the feet of Jesus. Some, some studies of this word, she brought an alabaster flask, literally says she earned it. It was compensation. Now, if it was compensation, what was her career? What was it compensation for? Prostitution. Prostitution. So this could have potentially been the compensation she had received maybe a night or two ago. Maybe the day before. Maybe even an hour before. Maybe even on her way back from her career. She holds in her hand the compensation for her services. Maybe. It seems like as she continues in this, in this place, she slowly but surely makes one decision after another to get closer and closer and closer to the feet of Jesus. She's standing there. She found out Jesus is there. She's got this compensation, or maybe it was something she had. We don't know for that for sure. She's got this alabaster flask of oil, fragrant oil, and she's standing behind Jesus at his feet, and she starts to weep. I wonder why she showed up there in the first place. I wonder why she's standing there to begin with. Um, maybe she was looking for business. Maybe she was looking for hope. Maybe Jesus called her to himself. Maybe there was something in her heart, to Arthur's point, that said there's something different here, there's something better here. And as she stood behind him, she began to weep. And then as she began to weep, she began to wash. She realized his feet were getting covered in her tears. And that wouldn't do. So she began to wash his feet with her tears. And she wiped his feet with her hair. The hair from her head. And finding herself at the feet of Jesus, this prostitute, in a very questionable position, using her hair, and hair was in this, in this culture... I and mean, we still see it today in representation of this culture. Hair was not to be revealed to men. Men weren't supposed to see your hair. Um, I hope this isn't too crass, but it wasn't any different today than breasts are today for a hair to be revealed. And here she is wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. And finding herself there, finding herself broken, weeping, kind of a mess. Do you get the picture? She's just a mess. Hurting scandalous not concerned about what anybody thinks and neither is Jesus by the way she starts to kiss his feet she takes that oil she breaks it open we don't see that in the text but we know from how these bottles work you had to break them open you had to there's not a this wasn't a resyllable jar to break it open and she pours the anointing oil on the feet of Jesus can't imagine a more worshipful moment in all of history than this right here. Verse 39, what was the response? When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. She's a prostitute. I think the obvious question there is, doesn't Jesus know who she is? He does. He knows exactly who she is. He knows her reputation. He knows what everybody around the table is thinking. Why, why is Jesus 
This guy is supposed to be pure and righteous and godly. Why is he allowing the prostitute to wipe his feet with her hair and kiss his feet? Verse 40, Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. It's one reason why we think this might be the same story is because it calls him Simon, and Simon's also uh, the house we see the other anointing in. If that's the case, and this is truly Simon's daughter Mary, if all that's the case, and think about the family dynamics that are going on in this story. It might be easy just to look at this as some strange, unknown, sinner, prostitute woman, but what if this is Simon's very own daughter? Probably not allowed in the house. Probably had to sneak in for this moment. Maybe this is why she knew Jesus was there. Maybe she knew Jesus was there because this was her house. This is where she grew up, maybe. Verse 41. Verse 40, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said to him, teacher, say it. Tell me what you got to say. Verse 41, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them. So which one of them will love him more? Sometimes words or phrases in the Bible just floor me. Which one will love him more? Which one of us, which, which one of you, how will we, when will we, what does it look like when we love him more? Why would we love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she gave, but she with her tears uh, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with fragrant oil, this very traditional experience that you would have had coming to a house like this. Here she is, taking care of Jesus in the way that his host should have. Verse 47, therefore I'll tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. It's a statement of fact about her condition. That's why she loved me so much. But the one who has forgiven little, loves little. The one who is forgiven little loves little. Verse 48. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who forgives sins? What right do you have, in other words? Verse 50. And he said to the woman, why was your sins forgiven? Why was she saved? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So as we look at this text, we see a lot of things going on. And this one walk through them for a few moments and, and kind of get us to a conclusion point of how we should respond and how we should learn from this story of how we should respond to the gospel, how we should respond to Jesus every day, every moment. This text is a pretty basic idea at the surface, right? Um, it defines our need for grace as debt and defines our forgiveness as canceling our debt. So a simple idea in this text, somebody had a debt, and that debt was canceled, and that is representative of us standing before God having a debt and our debt being canceled. Jesus took our debt and in exchange gave us his net worth, gave us his value. Jesus had a checkbook, a balance sheet, and at the bottom of it had what he had in his account, 
with lots of zeros, metaphorically speaking. He looked at his, his bank statement and determined uh, what his, his value was. Maybe got any logged on to his, uh, his, uh, his bank account. We don't have really bank statements anymore. We look on our bank accounts, right? I uh, looked up his 401k. Jesus gave us his, his net worth. In exchange, he took our debt. He paid for our debt. That is a very simple summary of what Jesus is saying, what's being taught at the surface level of this text. That that is the central nature of the gospel. And her response to Jesus canceling her debt, God canceling for giving her debt, in the gospel was love. She loved him more. Worship, praise. I think the best way to define her response is affection. You ever thought about praise and worship in that way? Praise and worship that you might do in a moment like we had earlier, or praise and worship you might do in a moment like this, or praise and worship you might do as you're studying your Bible, praying by yourself. Praise and worship that you might do on a daily basis in every moment of every day. Have you ever thought about it as affection? Extravagant affection. That was her response. One way to say this might be, big God, big grace. More grace from God, more love to God. That was what's in her heart. That was in her mind. She saw a God who was big, bigger, expansively bigger than anything and everything in value and worth than she could imagine. And because of that, she understood her desperate need and the desperate gift of the, uh, the incalculable, did I say it right? All right. I, I said I was never going to say that right. Gift of grace that God gives us. If he is so big, then we need more grace. The bigger God gets, the more we need grace. The more grace we need, the more grateful our response and worship and praise and obedience and honor and love and service to Jesus, right? If you like shorter versions, great God, a great God requires great grace. Great grace always results in great praise. A great God requires great grace. Great grace always results in great praise whether that praise is in the moment of singing or in the moment of obedience on Monday morning at the office or at work. So how do we conceptualize how great God is? If this paradigm, if this equation, if this concept requires us understanding the greatness of God, how do we understand the, how big and valuable and worth God is, how, how expansive his nature is? Well, this, this text starts with money. I think it's an interesting thing to think about. How would we begin to conceptualize how great God is? We might start with finances. Um, and as I reflect a little bit on what's, what's a, a representation of value might be that help us conceptualize the greatness of God, I started with a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars is a lot of money. As a matter of fact, you start to imagine what a trillion dollars is and how much it really is. You have to, you have to put it into a certain context. Uh, LeBron James makes... Around $43 million a year, the basketball player. Everybody's familiar with John, LeBron James? Okay, good. Uh, make sure. If you're not, you can say, oh, who's LeBron James? Uh, LeBron James makes $43 million a year. It would take LeBron James 20, over 23,000 years to make a trillion dollars. That's how much a trillion dollars is. One trillion dollars stacked end to end would reach from here to the moon and back 200 times. 200 times. 
this was interesting to me, thinking about a trillion as a number, a numerical concept. A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. A trillion seconds is 28,000 years. That's the kind of number a trillion is. Do you know the gross domestic product, in other words, the amount of goods that we produce in the United States, here, on, here in the United States in the last year, was right at $17 trillion worth of production. You look at the whole world, the whole world was something like $71 trillion, which we got a big chunk of that, so go USA. Uh, but $71 trillion in the last year. So keeping those ideas of a trillion together, think about what the United States produced last year. Think about what the earth, the world produced last year, and then multiply that for years on end. Imagine if 20,000 years ago I offered you an investment in the earth <laughs> and the return it would give you on your money. That would be a good investment. $71 trillion just last year. That's better than Apple. Just a little bit. <laughs> and how much more valuable, immeasurably, is our God? We use, we use numbers, we use money, but sometimes we use size. Just some simple things when it comes to size. Think about the size of the universe and the size of the elements of the universe. Did you know you can fit over 330,000 Earths inside of the sun? And then the largest star we know about in the universe um, that is, things referred to as YK, and then there's some numbers beside it. Somebody's kind of lazy. They didn't come up with a name for it. They just put some numbers. Either that or it's in prison. Uh, one of the two. Thank you. Somebody, somebody chuckled over here. Thank you. Um, you can put over 300 of, the, of our suns inside of. Our suns is that much bigger. 300,000 300, of our earths can go into the sun. You can put 300 suns inside the biggest star we know. And that's not even to begin to understand the size of the Milky Way galaxy, which is filled with millions and millions and millions of, of stars like our sun. It's 100 light years across. Which means if you, if you stood on one side of Milky Way galaxy and you traveled at 182,000 miles per hour-ish, um, 182,000, 182, 186, 182,000 miles per hour. That's fast, by the way. Um, you get a ticket for that. Um, if you travel one side of the Milky Way and you travel all the way across the other side at 182,000 miles per hour, that is fast. It would take you 100,000 years to go from one end of the Milky Way to the other. Traveling at the speed of light. Just the Milky Way um, per second. What did I say? Did I say something wrong? 186,000 miles per second. Thank you, Ursula. I need to, I need to have Ursula over here like slipping me notes every now and then. It would take you 100,000 years going as fast as Ursula just said to get all the way across the Milky Way galaxy. And we know there are millions and billions of galaxies the size of the Milky Way galaxy or bigger, similar in scope throughout the universe. And God holds it in his hands. We measure worth and greatness oftentimes in size. But there's another more, to me, harder to describe way we measure value. And the only way I know to say it is the word grandeur. Did I say it right that time? This is, what I do before I preach is I ask Will how to say words. <laughs> Maybe now that I think about it, I should ask someone else. 
I remember riding, driving into the Rocky Mountains the very first time. And I grew up driving into the Smoky Mountains. And I thought those were mountains. They're pretty. They're beautiful. I love them. But there's something different when you, walk, when you drive up into the Rocky Mountains. The weight and the glory and the beauty and the majesty. Because there's nothing like them on the earth. You feel like as you're driving through them that you are experiencing the very presence of God. Because there is no beauty that I've seen that compares to them on this planet. They're so big and they're so, so perfectly carved out. And the light shining and glistening off of the snow and even in, in, in July. And the trees and the animals and the, the, the danger. I mean, I remember as we drove through them one time with a nephew in the car. He looked off and he, he wouldn't even look at them. He turned his eyes away because, because he was scared. They made him afraid. He literally would not look out of the windows of the car because he was afraid of the size and the scope and the overwhelming presence of beauty and glory and even danger that the Rocky Mountains represented. That's hard to put a number to. But it speaks to the greatness and value that we would put towards something and it helps us begin to understand how we might describe the greatness and value of God. Because they're so rare, like a diamond, it's so rare. There's only Each one is a singular entity. Nothing else is like it. It's rare. It's valuable. All of these help us begin to understand how great and valuable and worth God, how much worth God has. Because He's better than all of those things. By definition, God is the greatest thing. What if I asked you the simple question of what would it be like to live your life for the greatest purpose? For the greatest entity, for the greatest thing, for the greatest purpose. By definition, logically, God is that greatest thing. And to live your life for anything other than God is to live your life for something less than the greatest thing. God is bigger. God is greater. How, how often, though, do we describe God in such small ways? We've tried to make God in our image, right? We've tried to make God pocket size. God's okay as long as he does what I tell him to do. God's okay as long as he never tells me to do something I don't want to do. God's okay as long as he doesn't tell me to think something or believe something that's contrary to what I was raised to believe or what preacher so-and-so told me to believe or what the news media tells me to believe or what my favorite pop star tells me to believe. God's okay up until we've taken this grand and glorious, significant, beyond imagination and beyond description God and we've tried to press him and to an image that we can accept. Try to make him palatable. Acceptable. It is the most absurd thing I can conceptualize. It is foolish. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote in Chronicles of Narnia. Where some of the children had, were entering into Narnia uh, for the first time. And they were about to meet Aslan. So if you've read the books or watched the movie. You know Aslan is a, is a lion. He's a figure of Christ. And as they're approaching Aslan for the first time, they ask their host with a little bit of fear and trepidation, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? And the response they get is a powerfully theological revealing response. Is he safe? Oh no, he's not safe. But he's good. 
It reminds me of that quote because we have taken the God of the heavens who's bigger and better and more glorious and more significant than our brains can conceptualize, that our, our trillions of dollars can value, than the mountains can weigh in beauty and glory to compare. We've taken that God and we've tried to tame him. We've taken, imagine if you had in your home a beast of, of, of incomparable size and, and danger and put him on a leash in your house. And you think that this God is under your control, maybe because of your, your agnosticism or your atheism or your disobedience or your unwillingness to accept who God is in, in his glory and in his grandness. You think you've got God right where you want him. But he's bigger than you. And he's dangerous. And even if for a moment he's, you are allowed to think, be deceived into thought, thinking that you've got God on a leash, you have got the most dangerous, cre most dangerous being in existence on a leash. That is a foolish position to be in. It is an unrealistic, un, un, uh, undescribable, impossible to, 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 to believe that that's a possible place to be in. We can't be in that position. It's dangerous. We try to make God that size. In this space, I believe it can help us understand how big and how grand, how glorious God is and how we need to remember that even though we may be deceiving ourselves into thinking that we have God on a leash, it is the greatest, most foolish deception there is. So what does that help us know and what does that help us see? It helps us see that there is a gap created between us and God. If God is so grand and God is so glorious, what an amazing gap between us and God. As a matter of fact, there's a gap between a double cheeseburger and a steak, right? It's a finite gap. There's a gap between the steak and the car and the car and the house and all the way up through the whole list. There's, even a, there's obviously a gap between the, the worth of the, the double cheeseburger and your career or your family. There's a gap. But every one of those gaps can be measured in, in term, finite terms. Because every one of those things are finite things. But the gap between us and God is infinite. Because we are finite and God is infinite. And on the cross, Jesus stood in an infinite gap between us and God. Between the finite and the infinite. He suffered an <laughs> infinite torment so that we could ex experience an eternal grace in favor of God. And that's our debt that he paid. That's the value of his grace. So what's our response? As we understand our debt better than ever, what should our response be? What well, starts with faith, it was her faith in this grace that allowed her to experience the cancellation of her debt, but it moved beyond that. Oftentimes when we talk about the gospel and we speak about the gospel, it may even appear that we're speaking about the gospel in such a way that our obedience, our life after being saved is completely irrelevant. What this passage helps us understand is that our worshipful, obedient response is a natural result of, a supernatural result of the gospel. How do we mean? It was in grace that she received the forgiveness and cancellation of her death, and in grace we receive God's forgiveness and our response of gratitude is our response of obedience and worship that we live out every day. That was her response. Well, how would we describe her response? How should we describe our response? The first one is emotional. 
Or he might use the word as we use the affection. I said this a minute ago. I won't say it again because I just think it's helpful. When you're praising God on a Sunday, don't think of it as just singing songs. You are declaring your affections to the God of heaven. When I was, when I was uh, in eighth grade, I got my first girlfriend. I'm not allowed to speak her name in public in front of my wife. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got my first girlfriend. And uh, I would call her on the phone. Most of the time, while we were on the phone, it sounded something like this. Because we wouldn't talk, we'd just sit there and breathe. But then, every now and then, I would get a voice machine at her house, because we didn't have cell phones, so it was like a, a machine. For, for those of you who are younger than me, there was, used to be this little machine you would have in your house, and you would call it, and you would put messages on it. Um, it's really weird. Um, and your phone actually had a cable connected to the wall. It was really, really strange. But so you, I would give her a call, and if I got her message, I would sing her little, little love songs. <laughs> and I'm scared to death right now to tell you which one because I'm afraid I've sang that same love song to my wife. So I'm not going to tell you which love song. No, I don't, I don't even remember. I would sing her love songs. Why? Because as a young eighth grader, I thought I'd met the one. And my heart was moved. And I wanted to express that affection and that love. And so what did I use to do so? I used songs. I used, I used that lyric. And even, even now, since then, when I can't express my love, maybe in my own way to my wife, what might I do? I might write a poem, or I might get somebody else to write a poem for, for me. Or, or I might sing her a song. I might find, why, why are love songs so popular, by the way? Love songs are so popular because they help us express love in a deeper, more emotive way than we could express that love ourselves. Love should be affection. Isn't that pretty natural, though? Don't we, if you look back on the greatest moments of your life, think about them for a moment. Isn't there a strong emotional attachment to each one of them? I could, whether it's sad or happy, every single big moment in my life, there's something significantly emotional about it. I can remember when I saw my wife, the doors open in the chapel, and my wife started walking down the aisle, and I wept like a baby. I can remember when my children were born and the joy and the tears that filled my eyes. I can remember kind of sad and happy when the first night I was going to send my first daughter to kindergarten, and I stayed up all night long squalling like a baby. I can remember when Auburn was down by a little bit, <laughs> And with a few seconds to go against Alabama, or actually it's a tie ball game, and we kicked a, and they kicked a field goal, and it looked like they were about to hit it, and the game was going to be over, and we were going to lose. But an Auburn football player caught the football in the end zone, and the most famous, best play of all time in college history, if you disagree, you're wrong. And an Auburn football player caught it in the end zone and ran it all the way back with no time remaining to beat Alabama, a year in which we went on to go play in the national championship. That was an emotional moment for me. There, there, there may or may not be pictures on social media of me flopping around on the floor like a fish. <laughs> it's an emotional moment. Great moments, great moments always have emotional value attached to them. They always do. Now that's relative to who you are as a person. You may be extremely um, expressive in your emotion. You may be less expressive. But emotion always reflects the value we put into a moment. So if our God is so valuable... Why doesn't our emotion reflect that? 
will when we see the gospel, when we see how big he is, how small we are, and the grace that has brought us close to him. There's also a cost. The cost that she displays in breaking forth this, this $30,000, $40,000 worth of product and giving it to anoint the feet of Jesus. The word worship literally means worthship. It is us declaring to Jesus what he's worth to us. I think that is reflective on how we sing to Jesus. How much are we able to reflect his worth to us when we sing? One of my favorite quotes related to, to worship is from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, Worship begins where our dignity ends. Can you imagine a less dignified moment than this lady groveling before the feet of Jesus? Pouring her heart out, tears, hair a mess, wiping the dirty, nasty feet of this man who'd been traveling bare feet or in sandals, basically, basically barefoot, all across the city. And now she's wiping her hair, her precious, honored, glorified hair, all over this man's feet and kissing them with her mouth. These weren't nice, clean feet. These were dirty feet. The dignity that she possessed, if she ever possessed in, it, in any, was gone. Worship begins where our dignity ends. How often does our dignity remove us from a state and a place of expressing the worth of Jesus? Whether it's in singing and in worship or in our lives. Worship, our response, should reflect in the cost that we give and the cost that we're willing to pay, even up to our very own dignity. And then let's end where we started. All of this was a series of decisions and a series of choices that she made. We started with choosing between one thing or another to express value. Every single one of us, every single day, have many moments, multitude of moments, where we get to believe the gospel and respond in those moments of believing the gospel and worship and gratitude, declaring the worth and the value of God. And it's easy to say that Jesus is worth more than a double cheeseburger. That should have been the title for the day sermon. It's easy to say Jesus is worth more than a steak. Probably even worth more than a car. Maybe a house. But what about your career? What about your family? What about your spouse? What choices do you make on a daily basis that reveal to God that He's the most valuable thing in your life. What do you choose? When do you choose Jesus over everything else, or even better, over that one thing that competes most clearly for His attention, for His, for his praise? And then those who sit and listen to this message, there is something bigger. There is something better. There is life itself. Make the choice to see a God who's big enough to deserve your fear, but so full of grace that He died on the cross for you to bring you close to Himself. And in knowing and believing that, worth your love, the greatest love you have. Let's pray.